0: Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Today, we are going to be discussing uh, the subject of serial killers, specifically a serial killer in the 21st century that goes by the name of Israel Keys. I hadn't heard of him. I don't know if anybody had heard of him um, before. Yeah, I hadn't. Me neither. Reading this book uh, by Maureen Callahan. It's called "American Predator: The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century." And watched uh, the two of you watched a documentary yeah. on this too, just to supplement and because it's such a fascinating and really disturbing case of what sounds or what seems like seems to be a serial killer. That was so meticulous that it was only due to just one, like just a few tiny mistakes that he ended up getting caught. But Mm -hmm. otherwise, he covered the entire United States of America, except Hawaii, it seems like. But it seemed like he had basically traveled across most of the nation in order to commit crimes and to you know to convi- you know to commit his own fetish sexual sadistic crimes
1: yeah well and the thing is that he was so you know meticulous as she puts it to the extent that no one was even aware that there was a serial killer on the loose mm-hmm. cuz like usually in in past cases <clears throat> like the FBI has got their profiling thing right and uh and the the MO for most serial killers has been That they've got specific features that uh, that are identifiable that let uh, that kind of clue the investigators in that there's one person committing a bunch of murders either you know using the the same kind of killing method and it's usually clustered in a geographical location like uh, you know so if anyone's watched the netflix show mindhunter Mm -hmm. like um, you know the btk was in one city you know the Atlanta child murders were Atlanta child murders. It was one guy mm-hmm. killing all these people in one location. In this case, all these kids in one location. And so you see a pattern at first, and you th- and then you come to the conclusion that there's one person doing it. And it turns out that uh, that's what's going on in most of these cases. Like pretty much all the serial killers that you can that you can think of, the famous ones, um, that's been the, the thing. But this guy. Like there, no one was even aware that there were murders going on because he covered his tracks so well. There were no bodies to be found. There were people would just go missing, and they'd just be written off as a missing person. And you have them all over the country, and there, so there's there's nothing to connect all of these various missing people because the only thing identifiable that they have in common is that they're missing people.
2: Well, the, there are so many uh, exceptions uh, and um, quirks and things that were specific to Israel Keys that uh that were startling and made him such an efficient uh serial killer uh that we'll get into as we continue to talk about his story um i mean quite literally there there were times that i I would have to lift my head from the pages and say holy shit because his uh his approach to things um i mean he he took on this uh this extremely methodical, uh, driven, relentless, uh, machine-like, uh, approach. It was his, uh, it was his reason for living was to kill. Um, so it, it seems as though he arranged his entire life in a way that, uh, at least from the other books that we've looked at on serial killers, uh, has taken the the story of this serial killer to another level altogether, and I have to say, I you know, I had wondered if there was anything new that can be gleaned from reading another serial killer story. Um, and the answer is yes, unfortunately, and uh, and like you said at the top of the show, Corey, this was a very disturbing read, uh, just because of how much he had empowered himself to get away with the crimes that he did. Um, I think maybe we'll just uh, begin his story a little bit by, uh, by explaining what his last crime was, mm-hmm. which was um, the, the kidnapping of an 18-year-old young woman, Samantha Koenig, from, uh, from a coffee kiosk late at night uh, in Anchorage, Alaska, where she lived and worked and where he lived and worked, um, he he kidnapped her. He drew her out of the, this coffee kiosk where she was serving coffee to people alone at night. Um, there were snow drifts. It was in the middle of winter, so the, the kiosk was obscured by snow, and um, he pulled a gun on her and... Uh, drew her out of the kiosk, and uh, and basically manipulated her and threatened her into coming with him. Um, and then what he did was he he drove her to ultimately to his to a shed he had near his home in his front yard. In his front yard, very brazen, um, where he bound her. Ultimately you know giving her you know just saying that he was going to he was kidnapping her for ransom uh and so that he could give her
0: hope that she would you know be safe
1: yeah
0: mm-hmm. for whatever just because like a you know a total psychopath that was his modus operandi was to toy with people's emotions cuz he he enjoyed the fear he enjoyed to let it last the fear and the adrenaline and all that to make it last as long as possible
2: mm-hmm. right so he would he would say these things to her, and uh, and he bound her. And I think at at some point did he move her to a uh, to another location?
1: Well, no. He uh, first okay. So this is all happening in a, in a single night. Mm-hmm. So it's like ten fifteen minutes before closing at this kiosk that he takes her, uh, which is I think I can't remember if it was at eight or ten at night, maybe even midnight. But um, so he he gets her into his car. He takes her to his place um he to to um like to drown out her any sounds that she might make he tr- he starts blaring heavy metal in his shed um so he's blaring this music to to like so the na- neighbors won't hear anything but then at some point that night he uh rapes and strangles her and as he's I- i'm pretty sure as he's killing her, he stabbed her like once in the back <laughs> and he said that that didn't seem to to kill her and the the investigators interrogating him you know this is after he got caught of course um you know thought that well he did that not to kill her but just to you know as a as a little bonus he got a you know he got a kick out of it he it turned him on essentially and so he killed her there and then wrapped up her body in that shed and um like put her in a kind of like a, a plastic crate or something and and that morning he was scheduled and had a ticket to leave on a cruise with his girlfriend and daughter, mm-hmm. and so left her left the body in his shed in his front yard for two weeks. Or, or it was more than two weeks by the time he gets back, and then, um, then he, what as he puts it, he he thawed out the body, um, hung her from like a, a hook in in the shed, and then proceeded to um well again rape the the corpse of this woman and then um cut her up into pieces to get rid of the body and so this is all happening in his front yard and i'm pretty sure at some point in the book they say that uh you know once the cops got the 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 CCTV footage from the kiosk where she was working they could see what his truck was. So they were looking for this truck, which was just like the the most common truck in Alaska, like a a white, you know, just a white big truck. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, so he had the most common vehicle. And so they were looking around for these vehicles and they'd actually gone to his, like driven by his place. And it was in like a, a a relatively well-to-do neighborhood. And they'd eliminated that vehicle because they, they had nothing to tie it to the crime, so they'd actually seen that car. I'm guessing they'd probably, or I don't know the timeline. I can't remember for sure if they if they had seen this car like while the the shed was still there with the with her body in it, or if it was after he'd gotten rid of the body. I don't know for sure. But um, at that point, he like when he got back and after he'd dismembered the body, he then took. Um, the, well first he scouted out a location he went out to this lake um where there was good um you know good ice fishing set up a um you know a little hut for ice fishing cut through the the ice with his chainsaw it was like 2 to 3 feet deep right and then goes back and makes like i don't know three or four trips to bring you know parts of the body back he weigh, weighs them down and then put them into the um, you know, into the lake, mm-hmm. now this was all only discovered afterwards, like at this point the the investigators involved still were assuming that she was alive um, for well because they had no indication that she was dead, but also because around you know several weeks afterwards they they had uh, gotten uh, a text message that had been sent to her father, I believe, um, basically with the ransom. Idea saying that she's still alive and we, I want like $30,000. And once I get that $30,000, then six months after that, then I'll release her. Mm-hmm. And like her father had already raised just like 60 grand or something from um, just putting up notices and creating a Facebook page and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but at this point, she'd already been dead uh, like for for like weeks and, and even months. So, this was this was uh, Keyes's um like um this this was his tactics in this case like he he was still going to get the money and per- pretend that he would that uh, that she was alive to get ransom money when he'd already killed her weeks beforehand and at some point or this was before um so this was before he had dismembered the body she'd been dead for weeks he in order to um to like make this narrative plausible he took her like long deceased body, and spent hours like doing makeup on it mm-hmm. to make her look alive. Because, as he put it, like she just like her skin had started sagging, and she just didn't she didn't have the complexion of a, a of a, a live person. Mm-hmm. So he spent hours and hours like doing makeup on on this girl, and but he couldn't get the eyes quite right. The eyes still looked dead. So he like used sutures and uh, and and thread to kind of.
2: Shut like, the eyes.
1: No, well, not to shut them, but to to give them a little lift in order to make them oh. make her look alive, right? And and so then he he took the picture, like took a polaroid picture mm-hmm. of it, holding a uh, a newspaper, um, like a current day newspaper, to show that this, this was a current photograph, and then sent sent this you know via text message, I guess, to the cell phone. And so um, at this point, that some of the investigators looking at it, um, they they like who the experts they asked. Couldn't say one way or another if, if this girl was alive or dead. Um, they just couldn't tell it from the photo. So that those were, that was the extent this guy went to just um, you know prop up this narrative. And you know after that, that's when he you know dismembered her body and and uh, and uh, put her in the lake. But then the only reason they caught the guy, like you were saying, Corey, was just like a, a minor thing. Well, it wasn't so minor because it seemed like a big mess up. Yeah. On his part, you know, yeah, he was getting more and more brazen. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like first of all, this was the first, well, as far as investigators know, this was the first time that he'd killed on his own ho- on his own ho- on his own home turf. Mm-hmm. Like he'd usually traveled to other states, like you were saying, but this was in Anchorage where he lived. Um, so he seemed to be escalating and getting a bit more sloppy. So dur- during the course of the like the kidnapping, he got a hold of her debit card, and part of the deal was. Um, part of the ransom deal was to get the money put into her account or her boyfriend's account so that uh, he could use this card. So he's down in Texas, like visiting family um, that live down there and they're, they're tracking the, so Keys has the debit card with some money in it. They didn't put the whole 30,000 in, but he's in Texas and he's using this card and they're able to like every time he uses it, it pops up on the system. They're able to see within, you know, five or ten minutes that he's using this card, mm-hmm. and so they're able to track his movements. They're saying, okay, he's used it here, and then he he uses it in a town just east of there, you know, the next day or a few a few hours later, and so they get an idea of the direction that he's headed in. They don't know it's him yet. They just, they just know this is where the card's being used. So then they basically put out a like a a, b- a bolo, and um and some. I can't remember if it was a Texas Ranger that found him or not, or if it was just a local cop. But um, they catch him in like this, like town, like outside of El Paso or something. And because they'd they'd figured out from um, from a surveillance camera what kind of car he was using, um, that it was like a again like a Ford Focus or something. Again, the most the most rented out car that uh, that you can get. So just totally generic and standard, nondescript. But they see this guy driving. And, uh, and, and so they're talking like live with the FBI and the, and the, and the, you know, Anchorage police department and they say, okay, well, you've got, okay, just pull up, pull this guy over. Like get, get, him for anything, like any, any minor infraction, just whatever excuse you can find, pull this guy over. So at a, at a stop, uh, like the, a light turns green. He accelerates like three miles per hour over the speed limit. So they pull him over and start talking to him and they eventually you know searching his car find um... well bunch of dvds with some really messed up pornography um... wads of cash that are stained with dye and uh... and then in his wallet is samantha koenig's uh, ATM card Mm -hmm. and her driver's license and so he he realizes. Okay, well I g well I, well at this point he's re- he's realizing why they've pulled him over, and but at this point he's still denying it. He says, "Oh well, this was just I, I found uh, like a ziploc bag in my truck. Someone had put it through my window, which I keep open because I smoke cigars, as you can tell from the cigars in my car. And uh, I don't know where this came from. I just thought it might be." A, the, he said he thought it might have been payment from someone. Uh, one of his customers because he ran like a, a construction and re- like home repair kind of type business and they're not believing that but um, they know they've got their guy right so they get back they they extradite him back to Alaska <clears throat> um, you know based on the you know the, the strong at least circumstantial evidence and they're going to interrogate him and at this point this guy Kevin Feldis who's the, the like works for the US Attorney's office he's like the lead prosecutor in the case. I don't know the US legal system too well. Is he like was he the like district attorney or something like that?
2: That was my impression. Yeah.
1: So he like it, like edges his, himself into the investigation and insists that he be present at all interrogations.
0: Right because this had become a major media event at that point. So well, it, was but not, big, well, it was a big well potentially yeah.
1: Potentially a uh, the well, Samantha
0: Koenig's disappearance yeah, yeah. had.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh but still not a lot of details were were released. So I guess in his mind while while um like the the arrest and everything wasn't a, an event yet. Yeah, like the the kidnapping was and this would this was potentially like potentially the biggest kind of crime news story. So for whatever reason, like no one really knows, this Feldis guy just inserted himself in all of these inappropriate areas like he shouldn't have been involved in these interrogations first of all, well, for a number of reasons that Callahan gets into in the book, um, but for instance, like inv- interrogators are allowed to lie to um, to the people they're interrogating. prosecutors aren't, so th- that could potentially cause a conflict between you know what the cops say and what Feldus is saying, and also because he's going to be the prosecutor on the case, there are certain limits about what he can talk about and what he can't. And it's a very hairy situation where there's just all kinds of opportunities for things to go wrong that could then, get, that can, that could then potentially get the case thrown out because of like prosecutorial misconduct or something. So he was potentially sh- sabotaging the entire case by being there, but he insisted, and because he was like you know this head honcho guy in Anchorage and had to work with all the police, n- the police couldn't and wouldn't um, basically kick him out even though he shouldn't have been there and the fbi were just kind of like shaking their heads and furious because who is this guy and and he he doesn't know how how to interrogate like anyone he's never done this before so they actually had to coach him like in the hour or two before the interrogation on, on interrogate and on interrogation tactics and what to say and what not to say and he goes in there and he just makes a fool of himself and uh... And Keys is kind of just walking all over him. Keys has no respect for him. Keys actually had a rapport with the other guys, with like the the FBI and the APD people. But Feld is kind of just screwed everything up. But luckily, he didn't screw it up too much in that in, in that initial interrogation, because even like despite all of the like faux pas that he committed during the interrogation, Keys still had the impression that they knew more than they did. Mm-hmm. And this was the really stupid thing, like, it's, um, it was fortuitous and lucky, lucky that it happened this way, but if not for just that pure chance, that pure luck, they wouldn't have had the case. They wouldn't have learned anything else about anything additional that uh, Keys wouldn't have cooperated
0: right well because the it sounds like there were just so many miss-ups and mistakes yeah. that were taking place and it's one of the reasons why keys chose these certain locations because he he knew that in you know certain areas uh You know, the police department's already equipped. They aren't equipped to deal with homicide, with, you know, serial killers. They're just, and even in this case, like the FBI agents and the people doing all the investigations while Keyes is being brought into custody to try and figure out if he is the guy responsible for Samantha Koenig's disappearance, Um, you know, like they, they search his property and they search his shed, but they search the wrong shed. And yeah. so then, when they're t- interrogating him, they tell him that they searched his shed, and then he, so then he does. That's when he spills the beans, and he's like, "Well, they they must have got they they've got me clearly because yeah. you know they've they found all of you know they said they had his computers, and you know they had all this information, and he thought that they they knew that he had killed Samantha Koenig. So then he said, "Well, he then he just he confesses." Yeah. Well, he doesn't so much confess as he does, he brags. And that's another, I think, another fortuitous element is the fact that he's just so psychopathic and narcissistic that, you know, part of him just wanted to revel in, you know, that that just dark glory that mm-hmm. sadistic, you know, serial killers all kind of, you know, at least the... Because like he, he was so successful, right? And it was really his pride and his, you know, just the depravity that he you know, of his being that really kind of opened the, the floodgates so that people could see what he was actually doing as he started to open up and talk about it. It's like almost like, he, you know, they didn't even have to prod, right? They just mm-hmm. always see in his shed, and he's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, that's, you know, and then he just said, this is what I did to her.
1: Yeah, but the, the crazy thing about that interrogation was that they bring out the photographs. He's like, okay, well, show me the photographs, like of the shed and everything. So they show him the photographs, and then he's like, no, no, that's the wrong shed. And they're like, oh, well, we must have, oh, they must have got the wrong shed. And then he has this moment where he says something like, oh, well, I guess I didn't have to say all that, did I? And then he kind of circles back and says, oh, well, you guys would have figured it out anyways, so I guess it's all right. you know." But they wouldn't have. Not, exactly, but they wouldn't have. They nev- And that's the scary part, too, because in
0: a lot of cold cases, I mean, it sounds like, Uh, The reasons a lot of cases go cold is because of that exact problem. It's just not a thorough investigation. You get people stepping on each other's toes. Mm -hmm. You get someone contaminating evidence, and then you can't use that evidence or it's not reliable anymore. And then the case just goes cold because you can't do anything. You know, if he hadn't confessed at that point and he had stood his ground, they would have had, you know, maybe a kidnapping charge. I can't remember what the charge was that they had. They don't think they even had that because well, they didn't have her. They didn't have her body. They didn't no. know what
1: happened to her. All they had was that he he had been using her ATM card. So basically, yeah. they had like these fraudulent charges that he was using his card for. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, that's and that's not a lot of evidence. Like it's right. not enough to tie to tie him to the actual murder. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it was it was a strong case, but there wasn't. It, but it was. <sighs> But it was flimsy at the same time, right? Like each individual piece of evidence wasn't very strong. It wasn't right. until he'd confessed that they that they knew what to look for, mm-hmm. and then they managed to find the body because he told them where it was. Mm-hmm. But that, like he he destroyed most of the original shed. They didn't even know the shed was there. As f- it, it's it's unclear if there were like any remains of that shed left. You get the on sometimes you get the impression that there was something there that they didn't actually see and didn't investigate. Other times you get the impression from what he said that he destroyed the shed, but left behind maybe traces that, uh, you know, that, um, the, to indicate that there was a shed there and he was convinced that he'd left behind enough clues that they would have found the body mm-hmm. but they had they had nothing like we said so they eventually find the body and the only reason we actually know that he was a serial killer was because of the things he said in these interrogations after he after he knew that he'd been caught even though so it's it, it's it all comes down to him sharing these these bits of information that we even know anything about this guy
2: Mm-hmm. Well, at, at some point, so he was driving around in Texas using uh, Samantha Koenig's ATM card. And uh, due to some really good investigative work and intuition and like a network of, of the uh, Anchorage PD, the FBI in Anchorage, and people that knew people in Texas, and, and this really good networking, um, they, were, they were able to figure out that it was likely him who was driving uh, and using the ATM card in Texas. Now, in, in the interrogation, something he says is he didn't know that he could be traced, yeah. uh, that, the lo- that the very locations where he went to the ATMs to draw out the money could be traced, that, that, the, that the cards would be, that they could even find it. But then in a later interrogation for other crimes that he began to discuss peripherally, uh, he said, oh, I knew that. And and it's very interesting because he was very careful to take out the batteries of his cell phones wherever he went because he knew that there was a, a kind of a GPS tracking of location. So he, he had thought about all kinds of considerations in committing these crimes. He had considered uh, DNA evidence. He considered uh, uh, how he was going to do things and, and who, who he would be seen by. And he had... He had practiced these things. He had stalked people. He had imagined these various scenarios in his mind. So to, to, to later admit that he was aware that, um, that an ATM card can be pinged from, from where a withdrawal was uh, suggests that either, A, he was just getting sloppy, as we were saying before, uh, in the case of this particular crime, or there was some part of him that wanted to be caught. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've, we've read about other cases like Ed Kemper, who was practically coming up to police officers and saying, look, I did it. And, and the reason is that there was a, a, a kind of level of satisfaction or gloating, as you were saying, Corey, or, or, um, or adulation uh, or recognition of his, of his criminal genius, uh, for lack of a better descriptor uh, that he was looking for. Now when, when investigators went through his, his house in Anchorage they found a whole library of books on serial killers so uh, I think another thing that sets him apart was the fact that he was very interested on, in how other people had gone about the business of doing these horrible things and And wanted to uh, wanted to surpass uh, whatever reputation uh, people like um, Ted Bundy had, who he called his personal hero. so uh, you know we, we don't it's kind of ambiguous. you don't know if, he, if a part of him was ready to get caught and ready to take his his career as a serial killer and, and criminal uh, to this next stage. Um, Or what? Another thing uh, that they found
0: in his library, which I thought was interesting, were a couple books, uh, or books by FBI profilers. Mm -hmm. So he had a book by by Roy... Hazelwood uh called Dark Dreams and that is a book all about, you know, sadistic psychopaths and you know, sex crimes basically. And then the other one was Mindhunter, which is, you know, like it's on Netflix right now the 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 show, but this is, you know, a book about, you know, inside the Quantico's, you know, or inside the, inside the behavioral FBI's
1: elite serial crime elite, unit.
0: Yeah, elite serial crime unit. So, you know, we, when you when you look at someone like israel keys it real. i think it a really big lesson to take home is the fact that you know while you know the fbi or while law enforcement in general is studying serial killers to a certain degree uh and studying psychopaths you know you can't ignore the fact that they're also studying you Mm -hmm. and the information that you put out there is also going to be used in order to enhance their criminal techniques which is what allowed Israel Keys to get away with, who knows? We we don't know how many murders. I mean, we've only discussed the one of Samantha Koenig, but he let drop a couple other murders. That, but he never he never confessed to all of the murders that he had done, and he refused to. You know, it was kind of like a cat-and-mouse game that he was playing with the FBI. Like, here, I'll give you this little tidbit. Maybe you can find it. You don't know how much he was just embellishing, if he was throwing them red herrings every now and then. But you, but it's fairly clear, they could tell from the evidence of the way he spoke, the way he conducted himself during the murder of Samantha Koenig, the kinds of things that he relayed saying to her, that he was clearly, he was, he had a lot of experience in knowing how to talk to victims and basically elevating it into almost like a science really to Mm. get them to do exactly what you want them to do, get, you know, sell them the things that you, you know, will keep them pacified or, you know, give them just little subtle, subtle hints that they might be able to escape with their life. Um, but the, but yeah, just a very, a very big takeaway is that, um, he only got caught because he seemed like he wanted to get caught. Yeah. I mean, there is a whole sub, you know, genre, I don't know what you'd say, subcategory of serial killers out there who, like, for all the missing people that, you know, are actually his victims, you know, there are so many other missing people who are the victims of other individuals who behave in, you know, the same or similar sort of meticulous fashion.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, oh, there's so many different directions to go in on that. But, um, maybe one thing about the him getting sloppy and wanting to get caught. Callahan has, has this interesting passage in here talking about that. So, um, well, first he various times in these interrogations he would make these vague allusions to his grand plan, mm-hmm. like or his grand plans, and he had all of these plans, um, and they were never quite sure what these plans were. But he he let drop a few details. But again, it was hard to know if these were actually his grand plans or if he had other plans or what he was really planning. But one was he wanted to start using churches. He thought it would be uh, like a good idea to use uh, like churches as staging grounds for some of these crimes. I'll get into the details of that later. But that's just the context for what she writes here. She says, but now he found himself conceiving of elaborate crimes, ones that would make the news, not just local, national. That was why the churches a serial killer targeting churches would cause a nationwide panic. Keyes said his urge for infamy built over time. For years, he would only ever check media coverage of what he had done at airports or at libraries, public computers only. But as his crimes became more brazen, news lasting not days or weeks, but months or years, Keys became frustrated. He wanted the world to know. In the history of monsters, he was a great... Um, Keyes said, "I definitely got carried away with the publicity," and a bit later on, he says, um, "I knew I was getting stupid, I guess, but I was still planning ahead." So um, it was almost like, just like in 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 Keese's case, in Keese's case, and in serial killers' case cases, the the extent and the, the, the depravity of their crimes escalates because it's kind of like a drug addict they need more and more in order to feel the same sensations so they need to get more extreme and more extreme in order to get that rush same thing with the infamy it's like whereas previously he was fine with having no publicity and maybe just um, he would like other serial killers drive by the crime scene just to see what was going on like this couple that he killed um, a year before samantha He, he, again, he was on, on, on a, you know, a trip somewhere. I think it was in Vermont. And so he he was traveling between States and he'd killed them and then gone to do his business somewhere else. And then on his way home to the airport, just drove by just to see what was going on and saw the police there. And that was enough for him just to see that the police were there. And, and he'd duped them essentially. They had no idea. And so that gave him a, a bit of a rush. And then, but by the time of Samantha, he was even going on to the Anchorage news websites and posting comments on under the articles using the name Israel, his real name, not his full name, but talking about like his theories and why he thinks that the they'll never catch whoever did this and so he was getting more and more uh, he was inserting himself more and more into the public narrative so it was it was like part of him did want did want to get caught, did want the infamy, the publicity. But then even that is contradicted by his, his, uh, his cat and mouse game with the uh, police because he was telling the police he didn't want any publicity. He, um, his condition was that um, he'd only tell them things if they kept it out of the news because he didn't want his daughter to find out and his, and his family and all the people connected to him. So part of, part of his deal was, first of all, he wanted the death penalty within a year. Um, he wanted them to kill him, and he didn 't want big publicity and everyone to know about it because they make like they 'd make stupid, true crime documentaries about him so it was this weird contradiction where he kind of wanted to get caught and wanted the publicity, but said he didn't and set everything up so that uh, so that he could try to to keep it out of the news, which he managed to do for a while like the the fbi was was kind of giving in to his demands because they needed and wanted the more information from him. Um, so it was just this weird, like confusing mess but um then, on the subject of the books that he was reading um like another one that he had was uh was uh, oh where is it a novel by uh, Dean
2: Koontz. Yeah, it?
1: Dean Koontz Dark Dreams. So, uh, Koontz's novel crystallized the uh thoughts and urges, the love of pain, self-infl- self-inflicted and imposed, the ultimate pointlessness of human existence, the disbelief in God or any other higher being, the power and transcendent and transcendence that only taking torturing and killing people could provide. That this made him feel ironically like the god he didn't believe in. Uh, he was like a self-avowed atheist. Had grown up in like uh, with some Mormon parents who were into all kinds of like they'd go from one kind of radical religious group to the other. Um, but he had gotten off religion at some point.
2: Harrison, could you read the rest of that paragraph? It's a great paragraph. Um,
1: well, that was maybe it's the next paragraph. Okay, so Kuntz described his serial color- Kuntz described his serial killer thusly, He does not believe in reincarnation or in any of the standard practices of an afterlife that are sold by the world's great religions. But if, if he is to undergo an, uh, an apotheosis, it will be brought about by his own bold actions, not by divine grace. If he in fact becomes a god, the transformation will occur because he has already chosen to live like a god, without fear, without remorse, without limits, with all his senses fiercely sharpened. Mm-hmm. Is that the one?
2: Yeah, that was the one. It it made quite an impression on me, um in the sense that it was it, it described his some element of, of Keys' psyche so well I thought that he is uh you know, I I was trying to think of of ways to describe what Keys is or was, and um, you know, a, a void, a, a black hole, a puppet of of larger evil forces, if if they can be said to exist in the world. Um, it, you know, psychopath is is part of the description for sure, and then uh, his his will to doing so much harm, to causing such great suffering uh, among so many, uh, for, for destroying the lives of people and making their last moments alive as horrific and terrible an experience as, as anyone can, can have on this earth re- requires something of a, um, a very close and essential connection to, to evil on a, on a spiritual level. Uh, so that's that's why I thought that that paragraph mm-hmm. was so interesting and compelling because that that's that has to be a part of the story as well. Okay. And I just wanted to get a little bit more into his history here because um, you know, like you were saying, his parents uh, were first part of this um, well, they part were of Mormons. This, first. They were Mormons, and then they joined a a Christian uh, militia that was anti-Semitic that was based on white supremacy. And uh, and then they they joined another group called the Ark, and uh, his upbringing is very peculiar because his parents they had no creature comforts; they always lived off the grid. He had no birth certificate. Uh, he had um, no kind of government identification. Him and his nine siblings basically lived in tents. His father would. Uh, would build houses for people, but would keep all the family in tents. They made use of no medicine uh, israel was uh, he was considered the kind of caretaker. this is a, an interesting paradox mm-hmm. here. He took care of his younger siblings he was the oldest child um, and and everybody loved him. He was adored by his whole family. He took care of his mother uh, but but during this this Time of upbringing where his father was largely absent, and they had this, you know, one version or another version of this, you know, kind of weird religious life. Um, Keyes was killing animals, he was robbing houses, he was uh, starting fires, starting fires, he was blowing shit up, he was making friends. Now, this is a real weird, weird one, folks. He made friends with two brothers when he was part of this kind of Christian community. One of the brothers later on went on to be a kind of an accomplice to Timothy McVeigh's um, Oklahoma bombing. Well, that was the accusation. He
1: denied it, and then, you know, they never really pursued it, but that was the accusation.
2: Yes, but it suggested to me that he was peripherally involved with that whole thing. And if if you've looked closely at Oklahoma City, uh, that bombing—not that we were, not that we're going to get into that here today—everything about the the story as it was presented to us in the media stinks, in, including um, just how responsible Timothy McVeigh was for for what happened that day. In any case, a very strange coincidence. So. You know, Keyes grew up with, with all of this, uh, a strong independence streak. A He was very self-reliant. He would build things. He would build boats. He would build houses. He'd blow them up. And uh, and then in his early 20s, he joined the military, I think, in Washington, where, you know, there's this six-foot-three fellow with an incredible build, 230 pounds of... of Pure muscle, as as one of his fellow soldiers called him, incredibly competent. Um, you know, made friends with a few of them.
0: Kind of awkward. Well, he was so competent that when the FBI called his sergeant, I think it was to to uh, ask about information about him. They the sergeant thought he was calling for a recommendation or a referral or something because he thought this guy was he's obviously going into government work now,
2: yeah. <laughs> right? And uh, and at some point it's implied, although details weren't forthcoming, that he he had received some kind of special ops training. Um, so who knows what that was all about? Yeah, that was but,
1: kind of, oh, Go ahead,
2: Corey. I was going to say, but even the soldiers that he worked with, they
0: they distanced themselves from him after they got to know him a little bit better because he was the kind of person who, being... The kind of person that he is uh, you know, a psychopath that he didn't realize for whatever reason that you you don't just talk about killing cats as though you are justified in having so much anger towards cats you know that yes. that's just something that normal if you if you say that to somebody somebody's going to look at you and think you're absolutely nuts and so they people knew that there was just something screwed up seriously screwed up with this guy that he's he you know just no problem talking about killing a cat when he was a kid because he was angry just murdering the the dang thing
1: yeah and he had this one friend like the one guy that he really got close to in the military uh this guy perkins and the fbi uh interviewed him afterwards about keys and this guy was extremely forthcoming and said that uh Bit. I'll read a few passages. He and Keyes had, quote, normal army talk about how to commit crimes and steal money. Lots of it. This would begin once Keyes got out of the military. So Keyes was telling him all his plans, um, and Perkins said that Keyes talked about his plans to kidnap people and hold them for ransom on a mass scale. He wasn't convinced that Keyes was kidding, so he was thought he was totally serious. And... um uh, and then at the end, they ask uh, if they were surprised that he got caught for kidnapping and murder. And he says, I'm surprised he got caught. He was smarter than that. So he'd, he'd confided a lot in this, in this guy because he thought that he'd told um, the FBI that he felt a connection with this guy. He was the guy most like him. And this is what I want to get into more of, um, more of what Keyes revealed about his own psychology, because there are several passages in the book that are just uh, kind of really eye-opening mm-hmm. in in terms of uh, you know if you're interested in psychopathy and psychology and uh, you know or serial, killer, serial killers in general there's just he he let he let a lot of interesting tidbits you know come out in these interrogations so um like w- the first one was i'm just going to read a few of these because they're really interesting. So he's, this is him talking about um, um, uh, kidnapping Samantha Koenig. He says, uh, he's describing things, and then he just says, you know, at some point, um, he says, I wasn't scaring her at that point. I was trying, you know, to seem like a normal person. So, so right there, he knows that he's not normal. That that putting that acting like an, a normal person is an act that he puts on. At some other point, he says, "Oh, at this point, I was still being nice." So, being nice was a strategy for him. And this is something that um, I can't remember which book it was in. It, it might have been in um, the the FBI profile, profiler book, "Who Fights Monsters" or whichever one it, it was. Um, I think that was the one where they said. Or it might have even been um, um, character disturbance, the George K. Simon one, where he's saying that never trust someone who's nice, because like nice, nice is just um, nice is essentially what. um, Well, you can meet nice people who are genuinely nice, but just because a a person is nice doesn't mean anything, because that is what um, people with personality disorders, like especially like psychopaths, that's what they use to manipulate you. They can be nice. But they're not being nice. It's just a manipulation tactic. And so for Keyes, that was his, his entire life was a, a manipulation tactic, um, con- trying to convince people that he was something that he was not. And so he kind of reveals it in these in these things. So um, then a little bit more insight. This is where he kind of contradicts himself by saying that he's not that weird. <laughs> he says, uh, um, "I don't consider myself that different." Then hundreds of thousands of people, he said. Look at the pornography they'd found on his computer. Bondage, S&M, gay, transgender. Did they really think he was the only person on earth attracted to that stuff? Then, quote, I just take it to the next level, he said. The sexual fantasies, the money, the adrenaline rush. Once you get started, there's nothing like it. Th- and that was another weird thing about him. So he was into, like, well, you got the, from the list. Like, they discovered, like, all kinds of, like, transgender pornography on his on his computers and and on DVDs that that he traveled around with when they caught him, and um, he said at one point that he'd always known that he was bisexual, and this showed up in his crimes too. So one that we didn't talk about, the, the other one that that uh, or one of the other ones that he admitted to was this couple in Vermont that I mentioned, and he had basically staked out their house. He'd previously found um, an abandoned cabin that he knew he was going to use for the murder. So he just kind of randomly found these people that fit the, this house that fit the profile. He was looking for a house with a couple in it. Um, He didn't want any dogs because dogs are noisy and uh, cause problems. So he breaks into this house while they're sleeping, ties them up, takes them to this other location, separates them, and um, um, has some trouble um, because he takes the, like the husband and ties him up, comes back to the car, finds that the wife, who, they're both like, they're this middle-aged couple, maybe in their, in their fifties. Mm-hmm. She had gotten out of her ties and was running away. He chases her, tackles her, ties her up again, brings her, put in, puts her in another room, comes back to the husband. He's like, um, like up and out of his chair. Yeah, and he like yelling. shattered his chair. Yeah, I shattered think. The, the stool that he was on mm-hmm. and he was like yelling and this so this wasn't going according to plan. So, um, he tells them, um, "Yeah, let me just." <laughs> well, some, some,
2: something you would say is, "Don't do that again, or it'll upset me." Yeah, yeah, or, or make or, me very angry, or
1: or there will be consequences. But he wouldn't say that he was going to kill them. He'd always, like you said, Corey, leave the door open like most like skilled killers do leave the door leave the doors of hope open by you never say you're going to kill them you you just say that something bad's going to happen to so that they do what you want them to do but he wasn't able to control this guy so um as Callahan writes it where was the abject fear in the husband bill um how was keys on the verge of losing control so then she he she quotes him When things got physical, that pissed me off. So this is the physical altercation that he had with Bill, trying to, you know, restrain him. Because there's a very specific way I want things done. Very specific way I want things to happen. And I have the whole thing planned out. I have everything I need to do it. What were his plans for Bill? Quote, I'm not going to say uh, what I was going to do with him. Um, And investigators didn't need to hear it. They knew. Keyes had planned to rape Bill, too. So he raped Bill, the husband, and then and and then before or after that he raped the wife, and uh, then killed them. And then and they they couldn't find the bodies afterwards. They they were chances are they were in a landfill somewhere, and they never ended up finding them. But so he was, and um, like the FBI, when they heard this stuff, they were kind of flabbergasted because this too was totally unprecedented. It was super rare, especially for a sexually motivated crime to to target like a middle aged couple like this. Like no one does that, and. And Keys really got off on it. Yeah, and then did
0: they? They also canvassed the area too. They tried. To, they tried to find his DNA fingerprints, all yeah. that. and They found absolutely nothing. nothing in the crime scene that linked him, except for the fact that he confessed to and knew all the details. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the the FBI profilers uh, just came out and and said, I think at one point that Keys was uh, the like one of the most terrifying people that they had ever. Uh, studied, uh, and, um, and it, it's for these reasons. Mm-hmm. And it had also come out that he, uh, what Keyes would do was, was create what he called these kill kits, which, which was just this kind of collection of, of items like Drano gloves, um, guns. rope, guns, various paraphernalia that, that would be useful to him when he, you know, when he would kill people. And he had them all over the country, mm-hmm. buried in various places. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's enough information to suggest that he would go back to some of these places, make use of it and in those locations. So one of the things that, that one of the FBI agents would do was she would identify where he, where they knew he was when, when he traveled at various times. And then they would connect missing persons reports to these areas at those times to see if they can make a connection between Keyes and, you know, who else he might have killed, which is another facet to this book, that that there were, I think, eight or 11 murders that were discussed in interrogations, but there's a suggestion that there may have probably been many, many more.
1: Mm -hmm. Like, at one point, she writes that... uh the The police, like the FBI, had managed to create a timeline of all his travels because, like you guys have said, he traveled all over the country all the time. It's like he was always traveling, and even though there was, he had like no digital footprint anywhere. He paid cash for everything, but they managed to find his flights and find out where he was at various loca- at various times. But then they'd have to, um, because they knew how he operated, how he'd fly into one place, drive to another, and drive. Um, large distances to across several state lines commit a crime then drive back they had to plot these all out to see what basically the radius of his geographical reach was and he did all this deliberately like he knew that he had to that he there'd be less chance of him being caught if he couldn't plot if he couldn't plausibly have been in a in another location when he was in you know uh, some other city so he'd go to a city and then drive for 16 hours somewhere else to commit a crime mm-hmm. and then drive back. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that anyone would do that, but he did. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I forgot what I was going to say after that,
2: but uh. well, it, it just, um, so this is kind of connected to it peripherally. There's um, a moment when he's being, I guess, arraigned or, or brought to court for the first time. Right. And, and the, the FBI agent in Anchorage, and like one of the more experienced policemen who's working the case as well, is trying to get the Department of Corrections, who are holding keys, to understand just who they have there. I mean, this is you know he's he. This guy has cunning. Uh, almost a preternatural cunning that exceeds any experiences that that the folks in Anchorage have ever had with a criminal before. And they're telling him, you know, don't don't give him sandwiches with, with plastic bags. Don't give him items that, that he can use. Don't give him pencils. Don't give him pencils. I Which, was getting to that, Corey. <laughs> so so Keys is in the courtroom, right? And shackled. Shackled. Like,
1: ankles and wrists.
2: Ankles and wrists. And 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 he's looking around nervously, and one of the investigators is observing him looking around nervously. Well, it's not because,
1: nervously. He was checking out a woman that was sitting next next to one of the cops, mm-hmm. and the guy, the cop, sees that he's eyeing this woman, and then moves to get in between them, and then he looks back again and gives this kind of frustrated look. So yes. it, was, it wasn't. He wasn't nervous. Yeah.
2: Well, it, it was. Uh, I, nervous is probably a, a bad descriptor, but yeah. it, in in any case, he was intent on something and only a short time later uh keys manages to free himself of his shackles pops up across uh, across the the chairs and um and it takes five police officers basically to restrain him using a taser as well only only later they find out that he used pencil shavings as you were saying Corey, as a lockpick to free himself
0: well yeah this is a this is a guy who built his first house when he was 15 years old and he moved into it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we're we're talking about I mean, you know, you, you watch, you know, you watch films, you watch uh, crime thrillers that, that that you know are kind of exaggerations of reality. But this guy was it. Well, and then that's that's the big the
0: that's the cra- one of the craziest things too is how the law enforcement Viewed him up there, like you know that you were saying. You know he used pencils to, you know, just shaving from pencils to pick his locks. And the guards in this prison would allow him and uh, FBI, uh, the FBI agent, to be alone in a room at the same time. They, I mean, and the one guard who's supposed to be watching. You know, they're supposed. You're supposed to have guards in there because this is obviously a, a lethal individual. But the FBI agent said he knew that Keyes could kill him with his bare hands. He knew that. And they left him alone in the room. And the guard who was supposed to be watching left, too. So they left him completely alone in the room, and it, you know, the FBI agent had to, you know, mask the terror in his voice with authority to slam on the door and basically say, "Hey, you idiots! Will somebody get back here and do their job? I mean, this is a this is a murderer. I'm in the room with a murderer who is, you know, I don't know how big he was compared to the agent, but a 230 pound murderer. You know, that's that's not a small guy. You don't want to be locked in a room alone with him. But that's the kind of incompetence that you saw in you know just throughout this this book yeah. she all of these details of incompetent just lack of conscientiousness you know no, just a lack of caring about yeah, you know like the the consequences of this guy's actions
1: and who he really is what he really is mm-hmm. there was this one example again in the interrogation he told them about the samantha Koenig case his the things that he did during that night he says oh and then i went back to the kiosk to get to pick up some um some zip ties that i'd dropped and to pick up her phone that was there and they're like what so they go back and they check the footage and there's the footage of him coming back to the place they hadn't even watched the entire night's footage Mm -hmm. to see that he'd come back to the scene of the crime nor had they
0: checked the footage from other cctv cameras Uh They didn't even bother to check that to see see if they could get a better uh, angle on what was actually happening.
1: It was crazy. Well, a a few more quotes about his psychology that are really interesting. Uh, I don't want to hear you questioning her again. He's talking about his girlfriend, Kimberly. You know, like I say, obviously you have no reason to trust me, but I can tell you right now that there is no one who knows me or who has ever known me, who knows anything about me, really. I'm two different people, basically. And the person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kinds of things I'm telling you, is me. How long have you been two different people? A long time. 14 years. Now, coincidentally, 14 years before was 1998 because he was caught in 2012. That was the year he joined the military. But even before then, um, there's all kinds of evidence that he was perhaps even killing as a teenager there were these two young girls that went missing where in the, the region he lived when they were living out in the woods. Mm -hmm. And the last, one of the last things that, um, that his original fiance who lived in the area at the time, um, who they were kind of, uh, you know, it was his first almost relationship. They didn't actually have a relationship, but the, the last thing she asked the police after they interviewed her was, did he kill those two girls that went missing in, in Corville, whether, where they were from. So and he'd, uh, as he told them, um, he'd been, again, just like most serial killers, he'd been developing these fantasies over the years. Um, so as a teenager, he, he started fantasizing, and these fantasies developed until the point where, you know, he eventually um, came to act them out, like, again, like most serial killers. Um, something about his childhood, let me read this one, maybe that was the one. He says, okay... His behaviors, oh yeah, so the things you mentioned, Ilan, like he'd start fires, break into homes. Um, his behaviors escalated, and he began to realize how different he was from most of his peers. At 14, Keyes and a friend, the one who he broke into houses with, were out in the woods, and Keys wanted to try something new. I shot something, a dog or a cat. He couldn't handle it, and that was the last time I did stuff with him. Keyes didn't understand the reaction at all, and, and uh, not long after, he verbalized his first real threat. There was a cat of ours that was always getting into the trash. It was my sister's. I told her, if that cat gets into the trash again, I'm going to kill it. Um, then a, a bit later, he was... Um okay, oh, yeah. One day later, Keys grabbed the cat and set out into the woods, his sister and two of their friends trailing behind. I took a piece of parachute cord and tied it to a tree. The cord was 10 feet long, and he wrapped the other end around the cat's neck. Keys was carrying a twenty-two revolver. And I shot the cat in the stomach and it ran around and around the tree and then crashed into the tree and started vomiting. And for me, I didn't really react. I actually kind of laughed a little because of the way it was running around the tree. And I looked back at the kid who was my age and he was throwing up kind of traumatized, I think. And he told his dad about it. And of course his dad talked to my parents about it. And that was pretty much the last time anyone went
2: into the woods with me.
1: Um, again, typical psychopathic behavior, um,
2: well, just to fill in a, a few other details in his adult life, he um, he had a, a tattoo of a upside down pentagram uh, put in the back of his neck. He had also uh, he had also said to people, and I think maybe to the investigators that he that he had a dark heart. So there was he was the guy was intelligent enough to realize how different he was from everyone, and to and to assign. His own um, psyche or, or mindset to darkness correctly, um, even though that had no kind of influence over uh, his actions. Something else that he that he had done, which was kind of mind-boggling to me, was he had gone for all of these kind of elective surgeries, like gastric bypass, to make his stomach smaller. So, so uh, the author says that he was he was biohacking himself he was basically trying to uh improve his efficiency physically as a serial killer um and uh, do you have any thoughts about that that's it's so out there oh i mean <laughs> do i have
0: any thoughts on that just <laughs> sheer disgust this uh
2: no <laughs> yeah i mean it, it it's so so much of his story is is beyond the pale even even for the types of information that folks are aware of,
0: well, I think there's one thing, one interesting thing we haven't talked about, just in, um, not just not about Israel Keys, but about the people that he didn't victimize, um, and he, it not like he had a lot of problems in Texas. Because of their, you know, the everything is bigger in Texas attitude. Where he was canvassing, or he was, you know, I don't know if that's the right word. Where he was outside of a bank basically waiting to to rob it. Just, you know, sizing it up. And one person just walked right up to him and said, what the hell are you doing here? You know? He was an outsider. They're suspicious of outsiders. He didn't have any good reason to just be standing there staring at the bank. And somebody just came up and just, you know, didn't didn't split any hairs, just say, hey, what are you doing here? There's no reason for you to be here. And so then, you know, that makes that makes things more difficult mm-hmm. if you're a serial killer, bank robber, arsonist. Um, another thing was that so many people had guns, you know, and they, you combine that attitude with guns and it, you make it very dangerous uh, for someone like Israel Keys, even someone as, you know, strong and uh, lethal and cunning as him, he doesn't want to take those kinds of chances necessarily. Right. You know, so, I mean, there's, he's, uh, he wasn't some, you know, he, he he pictured himself as being some super, superman demigod, you know, that worthy of, you know, being in the ranks of the greatest serial killers of all time. But just like every other, they're just predators. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just, they're just predators. And, you know, you do the same thing, you um, you know, you have to protect yourself and you have to have the mentality of of wanting to protect yourself, right? And then when you have that and you have combine that with awareness and you know some modicum of you know ballsiness, you know, like there is in Texas, right? You make it more difficult for someone like him to prey on you.
2: That that I'm glad you said that, Corey, because that really is for me anyway, one of the big takeaways of the book. Allow Allow the story of Israel Keys and everything you've ever heard about these types of people to scare the shit out of you enough to uh, face the reality that um, there there are people out there who who are quite ready and prepared to hurt you mm-hmm. for for no reason other than it gratifies them, and that, like you said, a great level of awareness and ballsiness. And hopefully, no one who hears this or, or very many other people uh, get put to the test of being put into this this type of situation. But have have some have some strong awareness and and uh, and don't be a victim and don't be a victim. If, don't
0: don't let that mentality be in your head.
2: Yes, right. Be like Texas.
0: But <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> Before we wrap up, I want to read one more thing. Um, this was about his kind of thoughts on religion because like we said, he grew up in this super religious environment and how does that work with uh, a psychopath like this growing up? Well, this is what he had to say about it. Um, so he's talking about his brandings. So he had like a, an upside down cross on his chest and an up- upside down pentagram on the back of his neck and he said at first uh these represented his his rejection of god and his interest in satanism initially keys thought there had to be a higher reason he was like this why it was he liked hurting animals and people and never felt guilt or even shame ultimately that logic didn't hold because keys realized he couldn't believe in the devil without believing in god evil was something else entirely he said at first i was pretty conflicted about it but that was all because of the way i had been raised and stuff And I grew up with good people. I was never, everybody's nice to each other and everything's all sunshine and roses. And uh, so that's why it was disturbing to me because it seemed like for a long time I was, I thought everybody else was faking it and everybody was like me and they just didn't act like it. Or I figured I was a demon child or whatever. I don't know. So he has these kind of weird thoughts. He's trying to make sense of himself at a young age. He knows that he's different. He's realized that he's different. He at first this is very common, uh like psychopathic projection, thinking that everyone's like that, and they just act in these strange ways, but then realizing later on that no, they're they're actually there's something different about these normal people. I'm different, and that often, you know, because psychopaths are so egocentric, that means, oh, well, that must mean I'm great, I'm better than them. There's something about me that's uh superior. Um and then it was later on when he read these serial killer books that he finally realized that he wasn't alone. He's like, Oh well, that's what I am. I'm like that. And so this self-awareness, this kind of journey of self-awareness that he had, this kind of strange like pathological journey of self-awareness, combined with reading these books, this gets back to what you were saying, Corey, how he he utilized the entire history of FBI profiling and the history of serial killing to, to like forge himself into the ultimate serial killer. So he learned all of the techniques. He stole all of the, well, he stole a bunch of tech tactics from previous serial killers, like his heroes, like, like Ted Bundy, BTK, also, and some other ones, and found all of the holes, all of the flaws, and then found a solution for all of them in order to be this super killer, this super predator and like we said he managed to get away with it that's the thing about most of these serial killers it's like they some of them only get caught because they want to get caught but if you think about it the only way you can be a serial killer is if you are pretty good at what you do in order to be in order to be able to do this multiple times like the golden state killer only got caught last year
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um and so a lot of these guys will be able to to kill dozens of people, mm-hmm. and who knows how many? Like just to just on the numbers, because uh, you mentioned a few things, Alan, Like no one knows um, that like he's he's is definitively tied to something like four people. Some of the like the FBI, the lead FBI investigator Payne, he thinks that there was eleven because when because uh, they'd for two reasons during an invest during an interrogation, he'd said that he told them a number. He said, "Oh, less than a dozen." So for pain, he said, well, that's weird. If it was less than 10, he would have said less than 10, so it must be 11. And then when, uh, when Keyes committed suicide in prison, again, using um, like uh, the, the razor from, uh, from just a disposable razor, and uh, he'd, he'd put that into a pencil um, and used that to slash his wrists. And then as he was bleeding out, um, he hanged himself from his bed but also he'd he'd put like he'd drip he drained some of the blood into cups and then used the blood to to write a message on the wall which included 12 uh 12 skulls drawn in blood so some of the investigators thought that was a representation of the number of people that he killed including himself so 11 plus 1 but who knows because again like you mentioned Ilan others thought more because they'd traced him using this timeline to 30 different locations and had found at least 30 missing people that coincided with the, you know, the locations and times when Keyes was there. And so um, Callahan in the book, she mentions some of these and, and shows like, okay, well, this is where Keyes was, was at this time. Here's this case of this person disappearing. And then just shows how, um, how it seemed to, to match up with, mm-hmm. with Keys's M.O., essentially. So he could have killed dozens of people. Who knows? And, and that's just in the United States. There are hints that he was killing people in Canada in Mexico in Egypt when he was stationed there um and, well in Israel because he'd make trips across the border into Israel when he was stationed there for you know sometime in ninety nine or two thousand so potentially he was killing like in at least four different countries
2: well it it's just it's interesting to me that he that he killed himself at all um he he was very serious with the investigators about getting the death penalty within a year's time of, of confessing certain things. Um, But he was, he he absolutely meant what he said. He wanted, he wanted to die. And in a way he wanted to continue even beyond his death to control the narrative and to keep the investigators who might've discovered many more deaths, in the dark, as to what he was actually responsible for, and and perhaps even what other parts of his grand plan were, mm-hmm. which if he had not been caught, uh, I mean this, this guy was a one he was a one man wrecking crew. Uh, he says that there were he said that there were stories on the news that had gone on for days, national news that he had in fact been responsible for. Now we never find out what those were. But it suggests that that this was evil and, and crazy on a, on quite a high level.
1: Well, maybe then one final point before we end the show. This will be a uh, a teaser to actually read the book. His case got upgraded from just kidnapping and serial murder mm-hmm. to terrorism for some reason, um, and no one actually knows why because the FBI is being and the DOJ are being tight-lipped. They're holding all kinds of documents, like tens of thousands of pages of documents on this case. Um, But, so that's a mystery as to why it got upgraded. And and so the files are being held for reasons of national security.
2: And... Well, didn't they find 9,000 pounds of... um
1: no. Explosive or, or gunpowder no, no, of some no, kind? There's or, no, no one knows what they found. All they know is that they, that changed after he told them that he liked making bombs. Okay. And he'd been making them for years. And then they researched his properties. And after that, because he had two, two properties, one in New York State and one in Anchorage. And after they searched that, no one knows what happened. His case gets changed, uh, adds a, a terrorism charge to it, and... No more publicity, like nothing else, released to the media or the news or the public. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to get the the full story, well, I, I pretty much just told all the details. But <laughs> if you want to see how they get there and just a bit of more of the circumstances around that, then you got to read the book.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot more details in the book. But um, and then the book also has uh, you know references to other really interesting books on you know like I mentioned the Dark Dreams by Roy Hazelwood. I believe that was the name, Dark mm-hmm. Dreams and then mind hunter it's another one but uh, a lot of really interesting material in order to wrap your your head around what evil you know really looks like and with that said go look at something beautiful (laughs) go look at something beautiful after this show (laughs) i think that's what i'm going to do but we appreciate you listening in Uh, uh, hit like and subscribe and we will go ahead and talk to you again next
2: week All right. Thanks for tuning in. Have a good one, folks. Be safe.